Welcome to season three of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. My name is Amy Wheeler and I'm your host. We are so happy to tell you all that's happening in the world of yoga therapy. And we love to find guests from all over the world so that we can share and learn and grow together. Some of the things that are happening in season three that we find so exciting is that not only are we continuing with the free gift that we are giving out every single week in season two, and you can see more about that in the show notes, but now we are adding a YouTube channel and you can see all of these podcasts on video. The YouTube channel is called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. Some people like to watch video maybe you want to use it for one of your trainings these videos on youtube will be there for you to use for free we would love your support we have opened up a patreon page that is going to help the podcast flourish and grow you can help us to expand and grow and create more content for you and we'd love for you to visit the patreon page which is called optimal state and yoga therapy hour podcast so let's go into our guest today and please nourish yourself take time for yourself and really relax into listening to the podcast welcome dear listeners we are getting very close to the end of season three of the yoga therapy hour and we have about fifty thousand downloads which means, you know, we're getting close to seven or 800 people a week listening to this podcast, and we could not be more thrilled to be of service in this way. Our goal has been to bring the world of yoga therapy together from every country in the world to really let each other know what's going on so that we all have more momentum going forward. We don't lose hope in the beginning of this emerging field. Sometimes it can get a little lonely and you can feel like, what am I doing? And the goal is to let you know that there's a lot of other people out there that are doing the same thing, pushing things forward. And, you know, we're in this together. Any emerging field takes some time. Like from my perspective, I'm in my fifties and I feel like I'll work till I'm 70 or 80 next 20 or 30 years to keep pushing yoga therapy forward as a field. And, you know, in 20 or 30 years, we may be where acupuncture is today. It took acupuncture about 30 years to kind of permeate and become an actual medical modality that, that people go to for healing and that oftentimes is covered by insurance. So we are the pioneers. We are trudging across the wild west and it's a wonderful time to be involved because we get to help shape the field and determine how we want it to look. And I think that's really exciting. Some of you, you know, sometimes say that you would prefer that it's further along and that there's full-time jobs paying $80,000 with healthcare benefits. But let's even look at the field of physical therapy. You know, they just recently, after a couple of hundred years, required a PhD to become a physical therapist. And now they get paid about 70 to $80,000 a year plus healthcare benefits. So we have to kind of put our expectations in alignment with reality and know that this will happen, 
but we're really at the beginning stages. And from my perspective, one of the most important things that we need to do as a field to push it forward, at least in the United States, I know that a lot of other countries have different insurance systems, different healthcare systems, but for us, I think one of the biggest things we can do as a field, and this would hopefully be led by the International Association of Yoga Therapists, is get us billing codes and not just for the assessment. There's one code for the assessment, but there's also another code for the treatment plans, right? So you get paid, you know, X amount for an hour and a half assessment of the client. And then, you know, as you start working with that client, you might have a shorter time with them and you get X amount for working with that client. And we don't need to be license to do that. Um, but we do at this time have to work under another licensed healthcare practitioner that can do that billing and kind of submit it for us. So I think that's the single most important thing for those of you that want to try to bill through insurance, uh, or work for someone that will help you bill through insurance. If we could do that, if we could show up at the doorstep of every hospital, every wellness center all over the country and say, look, I've got these codes and you can bill insurance for the time that I'm spending with your clients, of course they would say yes. That's another source of income for them. So I really want to encourage all of us when we speak to people at IAYT, International Association of Yoga Therapists, especially if you're in the United States and maybe Canada has something similar, I'm not sure, but really let them know that those codes are important to you and that that should be one of our top priorities as a field to kind of push ourselves forward. So I hope you've enjoyed season three. We are going to move into season four after the holiday. We'll be taking a little break for uh, the holiday. You'll have a few weeks off to go back and listen to some of the episodes you missed. And then starting in the new year, we will get going again. And we already have all of our guests lined up through May 2023. So we've pretty much got season four all lined up with some fabulous guests that I know you're going to enjoy. In season four, we are introducing a brand new element to our podcast. It's a way that we can get you listeners involved, and it's called the best of humanity. This is a little segment. It'll be a two to three minute segment that we put at the beginning of different episodes in season four, starting January, 2023, where you get to tell us a little story, two to three minutes of something that someone did for you or you observed that demonstrates the best of humanity. What we'd like you to do is to dial into this number, which is 909-754-4092 and leave a two to three minute, that's all, not longer, a two to three minute audio on the voicemail telling us about someone that you think should be featured in our Best of Humanity series. And then if you give me permission, I might put your voice on the podcast telling the story for the best of humanity. Or if you tell me on the voicemail that I don't want my voice on the podcast, Amy, why don't you just repeat this and you know you can tell the story. I'll be happy to do that too. 
You can call in at any time, day or night. This line is not one that rings. We, we check the messages on this line and we really look forward to having you contribute to the podcast in this way, lifting all of us up to show that really good things are happening in the world and that humanity has a chance and that we as yoga therapists are on the front lines with really wonderful things happening in our field individually and collectively. So join me and be part of the best of humanity. Again, that telephone line that you can call is 909-754-4092. And it's the same number on WhatsApp. If you'd like to try to contact us through WhatsApp, you could also leave a message there. Okay. Thanks for contributing. We look forward to this new best of humanity series. Welcome. Today, I'm going to continue onward with one of the solo episodes that was released a few weeks ago. It's called episode number 25, The Lens of Yoga Therapy and How It Differs from Other Allied Healthcare Professions. And this was released on October 21st, 2022. And I had planned to share with you this international talk that I had given to some friends in the United Kingdom called the Society of Yoga Practitioners. And I, I gave this talk in March, 2022. And it was 48 slides long. And in that last episode on October 21st, I thought I might get through the talk, but instead I got through four of the 44 or 48 slides. I can't remember how many there were. So today I thought I would continue onward. And I really love this talk because so many times we as yoga therapists are educating physicians and nurses and other healthcare practitioners. We're educating even our own clients about what is our scope of practice? What are we doing as yoga therapists? How is it different than what other people are doing? Chiropractors or massage therapists or psychotherapists or physical therapists or occupational therapists, how are we different? And can you articulate that in very simple language? One of the things that I think is really challenging is that there are very different techniques used by different schools of yoga therapy. So the techniques that Kundalini yoga therapy might use are different than Iyengar. Yoga therapy are different than Krishnamacharya, are different than more eclectic approaches, are different than maybe some of the programs that are more science-based or evidence-based. So we all have the same 800 hours of competencies that IYT has asked us to teach, but the way that we do that is so unique and so different that it's really hard to explain. You might have some types of yoga therapy that focus strictly on the physical, and they have very, very little about the mental or emotional. Then you might have a school like ours, Optimal State Yoga Therapy, where it's really what I call embodied mental health care. That's kind of what I coined for our yoga therapy school. It's not that we don't work with low backs and shoulders and necks and knees. We do do that. We have entire modules on that. But the way we look at it is that yoga therapy is here mainly to help people 
work with their own mind, their own perception to bring their mind into sattva. Because once that happens, a lot of the physical ailments start to subside or reduce, such as high blood pressure or chronic pain or dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system that leads to many, many different problems. So we focus on the mind using Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, knowing that that's going to have a really, really strong impact on all the other layers of the human system from mental, emotional, even to your your spiritual connection to something larger than yourself. And speaking of spiritual, in the end, yoga therapy is about, according to to the way that I was taught from TKV Deskachar, it is about getting clarity about your spirituality and who am I and why am I here and will I be here after my body goes away on this physical plane? You know, I've had so many discussions with psychotherapists, especially that kind of say, wait a minute, you're not trained to do psychological counseling. And, you know, of course, I I take their feedback into consideration and I don't call it psychological counseling. I call it yogic peer counseling, very uh, akin to maybe Buddhist counseling or the counseling that you might go to if you go to see your pastor at the church. There are many, many different types of counsel that involve a spiritual nature that people are not yet licensed and have no intention of becoming licensed. So I think all of us to some degree are doing spiritual counseling on ourselves and working with other people. Even as we study something like Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, you can't help but have these self-reflections about, whoa, that's deep. I think I have experienced what Patanjali is talking about in my life. And so a big part of becoming a yoga therapist, in my opinion, is not that you have to remember every Sanskrit word in the Yoga Sutra, and maybe you don't learn to chant all four chapters, although I think you should. I think that's a wonderful thing to do. And it's something that I was asked to do when, when I went through my training in India. However, I do understand that for some people, learning another language and learning to chant such a long textbook of four chapters you know, by memory is is just not happening for them. And that's okay. I think you can still be a wonderful spiritual counselor through the lens of the Yoga Sutra, because if you understand the underlying concepts about what is suffering, what causes our, our suffering, what are the symptoms of suffering? What should we do when we suffer? Understanding that confusion is actually the first step of realizing, aha, I don't have clarity. I need to do some work here. I need to do some svadhyaya and have more self-reflection, right? Those concepts, although they are outlined clearly in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, they are also universal principles, probably with most religions and most type of healing counsel. And I think the interesting thing about yoga therapy is we are not giving advice. We are not trying to help people resolve all of their trauma, although that could happen. What we're really trying to do is help people go inward and connect with something deep inside of themselves so that they can 
analyze for themselves. We're just the container holding that process and maybe giving some bits of thought based on the yoga sutra, right? It's not Amy Wheeler. That's going to say, well, I think you need to do this. Or I, I had this experience in the past, just like this. And I think you need to do what I did. Not at all. It might be that if someone's having communication issues that I say, Hey, let's, let's look at this yoga sutra. It has some really interesting things to say about communication, about satyam or about the nature of communication. Why don't we, you know, share this yoga sutra with you and then you can go home and journal and you can talk to your therapist about it and you can talk to your friends about it and you can meditate about that yoga sutra and then bring it back to me or your therapist. And and what did you discover inside of yourself with respect to that yoga sutra? That's what I mean by our type of mental health care, although there's probably going to be some asana and some pranayama and all of that, when it really comes down to it, this ability to look inward and to look at our own thoughts and words and actions and the relationship that we're in with other people with respect to the yoga sutra, that's really the heart of what we're doing. And I can understand why some of the other professions might feel uneasy about that, but there's so many other people out there doing the exact same thing that are not licensed. And I think we're really, really careful to not give advice and to not tell what we think the answers are, but rather just to give people food for thought. And then of course, if there is clinical things that are happening, like a complex trauma response, Well, just like any other healthcare professional, we do have to refer and make sure that person gets the help they need from a licensed clinical healthcare provider. So really getting clear about our scope of practice and when to refer is super, super important if we're going to wade into these waters and be able to help people really tune into the spiritual nature of their being and the part of their being that is suffering and how can we use these yogic teachings and Ayurveda sometimes to help people suffer less in this life. So this is the basis of the talk that I gave for the society of yoga practitioners in the UK. And this talk that I want to continue on with the heart of what we're discussing here is something that a quote from TKV Deskachar on meditation that really just lights me up. And those of you who are watching this on YouTube, you can see a beautiful graphic that I put up on the screen. And the quote is meditation. The whole point of that, and I I would include Svadhyaya or self-reflection in that, is to prepare the mind for its best possible state at any given time or place. Sometimes it's quoted as prepare the mind for its best possible form. So what does that mean? That means, you know, when I'm in an argument with someone, can I get my mind to be as clear and non-reactive maybe not completely sattvic, right? Because sattva is a state leading towards meditation, but can I at least with my rajas mind, have it tainted with some sattva and maybe watch myself as the observer, as I'm in this argument, or even, you know, when I go and take time for myself, realizing like, okay, I'm really suffering here. 
that means there's lack of clarity. Let go of my need to be right and my need to control. Start having a more receptive communication in uh, a more receptive communication style instead of a defensive communication style, which always starts inside of me, right? That that ability to connect with people out there, something has to shift inside of me before I can take it outward. This is why we meditate. This is why we have a, a wonderful yoga practice that we do every day. And especially yoga therapy where it's designed for the person at that moment based on an assessment. So I just love that yoga sutra and meditation will possibly bring us to enlightenment. But in the case of yoga therapy, meditation is to help us probably have a more focused mind and a more positive state of mind. And, and of course, more sattvic. And this requires self-awareness, self-discipline, and an inner reorganization. I'm going to say that again, self-awareness, self-discipline, and an inner self-reorganization. That's how we get to a place of healing, but that's also how we get to a place of enlightenment. Yoga therapy is a niche within the larger field of yoga. So the same principles apply to both. But when we look at yoga therapy, the self-awareness might be, hey, I've been struggling for quite a long time now in XYZ relationship or with this job or with my child or with my relationship with money or with my relationship to God, having that self-awareness that you are suffering and you're hurting, that self-awareness right there should humble us. If we're suffering, that means there's some lack of clarity. So instead of bulldozing in and saying, I'm right, I know, you don't know, you're wrong, if you're suffering, back off all that and just say, I'm going to go inward. And it doesn't mean that we're giving it a spiritual bypass. It doesn't mean that we are going to put up with abuse. None of that. It just means you're going to clean up the garbage on your side of the fence. And once you've done that work, you'll be in a better place to make a decision about the neighbor's garbage on their side of the fence. And maybe you don't want to be you know, connecting with that neighbor anymore, but we have to do our work first. And if we're out of sorts, there's work to be done. So that's kind of the self-awareness. The self-discipline comes around changing our habits and our patterns, changing our samskaras, which I'm going to talk about in a minute because the samskara is triggered by the vasana. And we have to kind of unpack that a little bit. But if we can get in touch with what emotional imprint or vasana is is causing me to behave or speak or think in a certain way. And I have this self-discipline to shift that. That's really important. And I don't mean willpower. When I say self-discipline, what I mean is that when your brain is in a state where it's not at its highest form, you're complaining, you're upset, you're feeling not worthy, you know, whatever your thing is that you recognize, oh, my mind is not in its highest form right now. Therefore, I'm probably going to start making up stories 
why this person is wrong, why I'm not good enough, why I should hold on to this thing that happened 20 years ago that I'm still mad about. When I say self-discipline, what I mean is do your yoga practice every single day. That practice that helps you have self-awareness, that puts you in a more sattvic state so that you can become the observer and not so ingrained in your, your problems, become the observer and get a little perspective. That's what I mean by self-discipline. The self-discipline to get on the mat or get into the meditation hall or whatever it is that you do, go on the walk in nature so that you are disciplined enough to do that and give yourself a chance at having the best possible form of your mind. Self-discipline is not willpower. It's the commitment to your practice and the commitment to recognize that you're suffering and recognize that you probably don't have clarity. The tip off is, Hey, I'm really hurting right now. So do we have the self-disciplined to get into that state of, you know, relative sattva on a regular basis? And I can tell you the more agitated we are, the more things in our life that are going wrong, the less likely we are to go to the mat or go to the meditation hall, right? I've had a really crazy, crazy month with my family and all sorts of things. And it was so hard to get on my mat. I, I noticed the resistance and I'd put it off and put it off and put it off. And finally, by you know, certain time in the day, I'd be like, Amy, there's no more putting it off. You have to be disciplined enough to do this. Now, when I'm in a really sattvic state and everything's going well, I just jones to get on my mat. I can't wait to get on there at five o'clock a.m., Right. So I think one of the the things we're talking about here is when you least feel like having the self-discipline to get on your mat or meditate or do your pranayama practice, that is when you need it most period. And you probably have to set yourself up for success and make a certain day and time and place that it's going to happen and not let yourself weasel out of it (laughs) just because you don't feel like it. You do it because it's part of who you are and you've set yourself up with that proper dinacharya or daily routines. You don't put it last on the list. If I get to it, it is an important meeting with yourself, just like any other important meeting on your calendar. So we have covered self-awareness and self-discipline, self-reorganization. And what I mean by reorganization is If you do that practice daily and become the observer of yourself and all of the problems you're having, and you realize, oh, I actually am Purusha and all of this suffering that's happening is just the waves, you know, on the surface of the ocean. It's not who I am. You become more sattvic on a regular basis. An internal reorganization of your gunas happens instead of being reactive and just doing what you've always done, which is pump more coffee in or more caffeine or more sugar or more wine, getting in fights like you always do, or shirking your responsibilities because the other person makes you mad, you know, whatever your, your go-to habitual patterns are that are not serving you, maybe overeating or over-exercising or, you know, whatever you tend to go to as your, your samskara when you're suffering by doing this daily practice and becoming the observer, 
an internal reorganization of your gunas will happen. You will be in sattva more often. And as Krishnamacharya said, you'll start to use the right guna at the right time. Meaning when it's bedtime and you're supposed to be going to sleep, the, the tamoguna, the kind of heavier, lethargic, slow, dull guna will come in and you will have a great night's sleep. In the morning, when you need to get up before the sunrise, the rajaguna will kick in and, and perk you up and make you feel like today's going to be a great day. Let's get started. So they're using the right guna at the right time is as important as trying to stay in sattva. And I think, you know, the people who are maybe doing some spiritual bypassing are trying to pretend they're in sattva at all times. I don't really care for that. I think there's a time and a place for sattva, but there's also a time and a place for tamas and rajas and, and being able to tap into the correct guna to do what you need to do. I had a really tough phone call the other day that required some heat to get things done. And I was proud of myself. I brought that rajas on and I, I let someone know very, very clearly what happened and why that wasn't okay with me. I wasn't sattvic, right? I was, but I was able to tap into that Rajas Guna for the conversation. And then I was able to settle myself back down, get a little bit more sattvic and, you know, kind of go on with my day and not hold on to all of that Rajas. So this is what I mean by a self reorganization, your ability to have the self-awareness to discipline yourself, to do your daily practice so that you're able to tap into the right guna at the right time. And hopefully just in general, be a little bit more sattvic also. I really hope this talk is landing with you. You can always go to the Facebook page called the Yoga Therapy Hour Facebook page. We have, I don't know, 700 members and go in there and, and talk about any of the podcasts and see what your friends are saying about the podcasts. If you agree, if you disagree, things you'd like to add, we would love to have a thriving community on that Facebook page. And as soon as you ask us to accept you, we will accept you and make you part of that conversation. So let us really get into the source of our suffering. Many of you are familiar with this idea from Patanjali's Yoga Sutra called the kleshas or the causes of suffering. And Patanjali lists five causes of suffering and says, everything is based on misperception. The misperception being that you believe that you are prakriti, you forget that you are purusha, right? So purusha is the witness, the eternal, the all-knowing part of your being that is free of misperception. Prakriti is like your emotions, how you're feeling, how you're thinking, how your body is functioning. That's always changing. And so the misperception comes in when we get confused and we start believing prakriti and ignoring the fact that we are truly purusha. And then through that misperception, we start to have a lot of fear. And that could be conscious fear or unconscious fear. 
of losing things that are precious to us. And from that fear, we sometimes get attached and hell-bent on, I have to have it my way. I need this to be happy. Or aversion, like, oh, I hate that person. I hate that thing. I can't stand that. Get that away from me. I can't be happy if I have to be near that thing that I'm so averse to. And then sometimes we, through our misperception and fear, we start to identify with things that are not us, right? So it could be even identifying to our yoga lineage. We start to think, I am Krishnamacharya yoga. And if you critique Krishnamacharya yoga, that's an attack on me. When really, those are two completely separate things. I am Purusha. Krishnamacharya yoga is something that has impacted me very positively over the years. But you are welcome to have your opinion about Krishnamacharya yoga. It doesn't actually say anything about me as a human being that I like it or dislike it, right? So that identification could be to people, places, things, or even spiritual ideas that we feel so attached to. And then also, you know, sometimes our misperception and fear make us feel like we're better than people or we're not good enough that that person is so much better than me. So we might say that your ego is too big or is too small, but you have a fundamental misperception. Nobody's better than anyone else. We are all Purushas that have come to do our work and walk each other home. So there is no hierarchy and any hierarchy that we put in our mind and say that she's better or he's worse. That's a misperception based on fear. So these are the kleshas and it's because of the kleshas that we suffer. Let's go back to this idea about a vasana. A vasana is a feeling that is unconscious. Everyone else may see that in you, sadly, but it's unconscious to you. And it's a feeling that comes up around particular people, particular situations or places that you've been based on something that happened previously. And some people say that Vasana could be from a previous life. If you want to go into, you know, past lives. Some people say it could be a Vasana that was transferred to you from someone like your mother, that when you were growing in her womb and your nervous system was developing cell by cell, you kind of took on her fears and her misperceptions and her attachments and aversions and over-identifications and ego being too big or too small. Like from her, you got this feeling and, and now it's part of you could be early childhood experiences, could be experiences in adulthood, things that we don't even know impacted us as deeply as they did. So the word vasana is akin to a scent that is left over after the original event. And we don't even remember the original event, but we know that scent. And when we smell that scent, that triggers a feeling inside of us. So, you know, when I was growing up in Iowa, in the Midwest of the United States, our town had a carnation factory. And so all day, every day in our whole town, it smelled like chocolate. <laughs> no wonder I like chocolate so much. 
if I smell carnation chocolate milk now, it triggers so many memories of my childhood of playing kickball, of playing with the big wheels. I used to be the neighborhood bartender where I'd take my piano bench and put it out on the sidewalk. And then I'd have little glasses on the, on the piano bench. And I'd be back there as the bar barmaid and all the other kids would ride their big wheels around the block and stop for a drink. I know this is hilarious coming from a pastor's daughter, but they'd stop for a drink and I'd either put yellow food coloring in the water or red if they wanted a beer or a wine. (laughs) I don't know where I came up with this, but (laughs) make a long story short, that whole series of memories and feelings. And it was really a joyful time to, to get to stay outside till dark and play kickball together and, and ride our big, big wheels around all of those emotions and memories and feelings happen because of carnation chocolate milk. Now I have put that connection together. I've become aware of my Vasana. I've taken it from the unconscious to the conscious but I would say 95% of what we feel with particular situations, places, people, and things is not conscious. It's not conscious. There's a vasana back there, again, from a past life, from being in the womb, early childhood experience, or even an adult experience. But we have not put that together with, oh my gosh, that's why I'm feeling this way. And what neuroscience is starting to tell us is that when we have those unconscious feelings, we start to tell a story about why we're feeling that way. So let's pretend that I smell carnation chocolate milk, but I haven't put together the vasana, the scent that's left over. And in this case, it was a literal scent, but usually it's an emotional scent or imprint that's left over. What if I didn't understand that? And when I smelled chocolate milk and I got a feeling of joy, my nervous system and my brain is going to start telling a story about what I'm experiencing and thinking and feeling in the story. So the story might be, wow, chocolate triggers serotonin in me. And therefore, when I smell chocolate, I get a serotonin kick and I have depression and therefore I need chocolate to give me some serotonin to overcome my depression. That could be the story that I just told myself. And so somehow I've made this new realization that only chocolate can fix my depression when really that's just a story. The The truth is that I had a lot of good childhood memories in Iowa And when I was having those experiences, I was smelling carnation chocolate milk. That's the truth. But as I said, 95% of the vasanas, we don't remember the original event and therefore we make up a story. And that is what we're doing in yoga therapy is trying to uncouple that. And we may never remember the original event, but what we can do is be in the here and the now and say, I'm feeling X, Y, Z. I'm in touch with these sensations and feelings. I'm not going to try to make up a story about this because it doesn't matter. I'm going to just stay in the present moment and breathe and feel and be, and be receptive to what is in this moment and create my own joy and contentment right here, right now, and hopefully going forward, right? 
Now I want to flip this around a little bit. I just gave you an example of a positive childhood vasana and how that's impacted me and the stories that I tell myself, or maybe I I recognize the original scent that was left from chocolate milk smell, but most of our vasanas that are causing us suffering were negative events that happened which again, 95% unconscious things that we didn't know, even at the time were traumatizing. So for example, when I was in a, a school play, I was Kermit the frog and I had to get in the Kermit, the frog outfit and sing Mary had a little lamb in front of a huge, what, what I perceived as a child to be a huge bunch of people, you know, it's probably 50 people or something. And I, at the time was so proud of myself thinking that I got to be Kermit the frog and I get to sing this song and look at me. I'm so amazing. But my body, my neurodiverse nervous system actually didn't like that. When I got home after the play, I had almost like seizure type activities and they had to call the doctor. My, my nervous system did not care for that experience, even though in my head at the time I was like, oh yeah, I get to be in the play. So that kind of fear of being on stage and public speaking, I can remember that. I can remember the event and and how my nervous system reacted, but it's very possible if I was young enough that I wouldn't remember that event. But when I go to do public speaking now on social media or in front of a conference, I have terrible, terrible fear of speaking in public, right? I don't actually, but this is, this is something that could happen. I'm giving you an example but maybe I don't know why. And so the story I tell myself is I'm not good enough. They're going to think I'm an idiot. What if I pronounce the Sanskrit wrong? What if I get accused of culturally appropriating? Cause I can't even say the right words. Something is fundamentally wrong with me. And therefore I better not speak in public because I've told myself this story around a that I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I haven't figured it out. I'm not perfect. I'm going to get attacked, right? Actually, that's a story. The original event of being Kermit the Frog and having such a challenging evening with my nervous system being overstimulated, you know, this was long before, this was 45 years ago, before we even knew about neurodiversity and how different systems can or can't handle so much stimuli. That's the real story. That's the real vasana. But I may or may not remember that. And I would say most of our vasanas, we don't remember the original event. So we end up telling ourselves this story, but it's the same thing. How can I let go of the story? How can I breathe? How can I be? How can I feel my body and stay in this present moment? Because the past is gone. Whatever happened, we have to accept that. We have to work to accept it. We can't keep ruminating and deepening those feelings of shame or discomfort. That is not yogic to keep telling some stories over and over and over so that we suffer more and more and more. What yoga is helping us do is be here now in this body and try to feel safe in this body, get rid of all those stories, even though some of them may be true, but a lot of them are not true. And can you be present here and now and suffer less right here, right now, giving yourself a new trajectory going forward, right? It seems kind of harsh to say, we know this happened to you. We know it's painful, but we need you to 
de-link from that. And we need you to be here now. Are you safe right now? Are you cared for right now? Do you have people who love you right now? Can you set your life up in a way that you're supported and nourished right now? That's yoga therapy. And it's not to mm, take away from the pain and the, the things that happened to us. It's to say, yes, that happened. And yet I can do something in this moment to help myself feel better to get into a more sattvic state. So the way that the vasana, that residual scent of being Kermit the frog in a negative vasana or carnation instant chocolate milk in a positive vasana, how does that link to samskara? Samskara is the conscious manifestation of what habitual patterns I'm doing in the here and now. Some scars aren't in the past. Vasanas are in the past. Some scars are here and now. And so while the vasana is kind of a subliminal imprint or stain on the mind, it's, it's in the past, right? A samskara is activated by that subliminal imprint, and it causes us to act in the here and now. And as I said, a big part of yoga therapy is trying to help people come into the present moment and to set up their lifestyle, set up their community, set up their connections to work or to play or to joy or to family members or to colleagues. How can I get my mind to be in its best form right now? And that's what Deskachar said meditation is. Well, that's the purpose of meditation is how can I get to my best form right here, right now? How can I use my daily yoga practice, which I'm disciplined to do, whether I want to get on the mat or not to do pranayama or meditation or asana or chanting or journaling? How can I use that self-discipline of doing my daily practice to give myself the best possible state of mind. That's what we're doing in this present moment. And again, some may say that this borders on psychotherapy, but it's different because it's about creating the container to help people do their own internal work outside of the session, right? We're, when, when we're working together as a yoga therapist and yoga student, I may say, I would like you to go reflect on Yoga Sutra, you know, 131, and I'll show them Yoga Sutra 131 and tell them what it means. And I'd like you to take this into your daily practice and do these asanas and do this pranayama and do this meditation and journal about it. And then either come back to me, or if there's something that you feel needs to be elevated to the level of your psychotherapist, who oftentimes people work with at the same time, fantastic. Or if I recognize there's some clinical symptoms of depression or severe anxiety, I might say, look, you really need to get a, a psychotherapist. I, I'm referring you right here, right now. It's not that we think yoga therapists can do it all, but that ability to know the yoga sutra and that ability to develop practices that are going to help us become aware of the 95% of the vasanas, those imprints that are unconscious to us and help them safely come to the surface in a titrated way. That is what the daily practice does. That is the purpose that you have to do the work on your 
yourself through your daily practice. And this is why students who don't do their daily practice, it's problematic. You can't just come to me once a month and get a new practice and do it once and then not do it for 29 days and then come back. And again, the the thing about yoga therapy is it's self-empowered. That student has to be self-empowered to want to do it. And that's a really, really hard thing for a lot of people to schedule their day and schedule their lifestyle where they're going to have that time to connect deeply with themselves on a daily or regular basis and not let life take over and kind of snatch that time away. And a true yoga therapist will be able to create practices to help people find that daily discipline and do that deep internal reorganization that we talked about that leads to both enlightenment, but it also leads to health and healing, right? Going back to what we talked about earlier, our yoga therapy practice helps us to have self-awareness. Basically, I'm suffering. I got to step back here. I got to be humble. If I'm suffering, something's off. I need to go inside and figure out what's happening to me. The discipline to do the daily practice, which will result in that internal reorganization of mental habitual patterns, of uh, behaviors such as coping activities. You know, there's a lot of different ways to reorganize, or as I said before, the reorganization of your gunas, of being able to use the right guna at the right time, or being a more sattvic person in general. So I just love what we do as yoga therapists. And I'm not sure that everybody does yoga therapy this way. As I said, at the beginning, there are different types of yoga therapy that might focus more on the physical, but in the optimal state system, we are really connected to mental transformation of the mind and how it functions And when we do that, magically chronic pain starts to reduce and back pain feels better. Yes, we'll still do some Shalabhasana or Superman pose. We'll still do Virabhadrasana at the wall and try to get the glutes to contract. It's it's not that we're ignoring the physical body, but it is this realization or recognition that the mental emotional state is triggering the physical body to act in a certain way, specifically through the autonomic nervous system. And that's where the work of Stephen Porges and Marlisa Sullivan and all these people has been so profound to help us connect the science that is out there to the actual ancient teachings and find a way to show that polyvagal theory and the vagus nerve are basically showing us what's happening with the gunas, which was outlined in Sankhya philosophy 2000 years ago. This to me is the precious part of yoga therapy that nobody else is doing. The balancing of the autonomic nervous system, the assessment and reorganization of the gunas. Physical therapists aren't doing that. Psychotherapists aren't doing that. We as yoga therapists, this is our thing. This is what we do that other people don't do. And I think it's a really beautiful offering to the world. And it's what the world needs right now in these very tumultuous times, the world needs people to be more balanced, more sattvic and needs people that can tap into the right guna at the right time, meaning getting a good night's sleep and waking up refreshed so that we can do our Dharma. 
So on that note, I would like to finish today's talk and getting close to the end of season three by telling you that my gunas seem to be responding well to all of the care and nurturing that I've been doing for myself the last six months that I have gone through three major medical scans last week, PET scans and CT scans. I had to get in that tube three times in one week. And at this point in time, six months after my original cancer diagnosis, I am cancer-free and we have no reason to think that it's going to come back and no reason to worry about it. So that's kind of the update on my health. And I'm just really happy to share that with you because I think it's important to follow up all of those of you that have given me so much care and love and sweetness through your messages and your prayers and your chanting from all over the world. I want you to know that it matters. I felt it. I'm receiving it and it's, it's helping. And that's not to say that if I had had a recurrence or do have a recurrence that it was a failure or, you know, that something went wrong. That's just to say, I'm receptive and appreciative of all the love that you've given me. And I'm still using it on a daily basis to put my mind in its best possible form. Because if my mind is in its best possible form, as Deskachar said, I have the best possible outcome. And if a bad outcome comes, well, then I have the best possible chance for acceptance of whatever happens, right? I, I can't lose either way. So I'm just really appreciative and I want to send all of that love right back at you. Thank you for listening once again for season three and we will see you in a few weeks. Please don't forget to sign up for our newsletter mailing list where we give you a free gift every single week. It's usually something that the guest has been talking about, like a book chapter or an article or an infographic. Check out the show notes for that. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget, we have a new YouTube channel called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. We also have a new Patreon page where you can support us to bring you the most excellent content. And that is Optimal State and the Yoga Therapy Hour Patreon page. Also, you could write us a review on most major platforms that host podcasts. Give us five stars if you appreciate the show and tell us what you love so that we can do more of that. Finally, we support several nonprofit organizations through this podcast. See the show notes to understand how you can help. If you'd like to be a guest or a sponsor for this program, contact us at the email welcome at theoptimalstate.com. Welcome at theoptimalstate.com. And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. 
Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.